Hello and welcome to the Diabetes Dugout with Brighty and Peachy, brought to you by the Diabetes Football Community. This is your regular dose of all things football and diabetes as we bring you the stories of those affected by the condition who have a love of the sport. Everything we share and talk about on this podcast is from personal experience and if you have any concerns about the management of your condition, you should always check in with a healthcare professional. Now, with all that said, let's crack on with the episode. bit of a different episode this time out as there is no Peachy joining me. He's taken a seat in the dugout behind me on this episode and let me take the lead on the touchline. I'm not sure whether that was wise but he has, he's let me loose and um, it's going to be a little bit of a different one for you today. So on this episode it's going to be a conversation between myself and a friend of mine, uh, Jack Hinks from Core Clinics who regularly looks after me as a uh, sports therapist, so uh, keeps me in tip-top shape, ready and raring to go for sport when I'm uh, obviously able to be out there playing. And and in this episode, what we wanted to do was to share some insight, a little bit more focused around uh, raising awareness of the condition, and almost capture a bit of a candid co- conversation between the two of us, where we discuss um, the things that have affected me in my life and really think about raising awareness to those who maybe don't have the condition. And hopefully, uh, it's not a wasted episode, hopefully for those who do have the condition, as I really hope that you'll be able to um, resonate with the things that I talk about as I run through my diagnosis, uh, the symptoms of diabetes, and also hopefully give some insight around how I manage uh, my condition and the impact that it has on my sport. And then really importantly, also discuss the impact of stigma um, around the condition and what effect that has had on me and also what effect that has on the wider population. So obviously without Peachy on this episode, but I really do hope you go on to enjoy it. And uh, yeah, please please keep passing the pod, keep sharing it. And uh, yeah, hopefully you enjoy this episode as much as I did enjoy it having the conversation. So with that said, let's crack on with the pod. I've lived with type 1 diabetes since 1999, where I was diagnosed with the condition um, as an eight-year-old. And then from, I suppose, a a sporting background perspective, I've played football ever since I was a young young nipper. So I played football before I was diagnosed. I played football after I was diagnosed. So... um, Spent the last 21 years in the sport. Yeah. Um, played various different levels, you know, as you go through school, sort of playing at those regional teams and then yeah. into the university world, played university teams and um, and then obviously found futsal as well as a, yeah. as a sort of adult and played part-time football or people want to call it like semi-pro football and then... Um, also played futsal as well and represented Wales um, on several occasions in the last few years. Yeah. Uh, and then obviously alongside that, the really key point in it is that I wanted to use the experiences that I had as a as a kid growing up and then as an adult with yeah. this condition to 
try to alter some of what I felt was challenging growing up with the condition. So using some of the knowledge that I had in the sport, so and then using that sport as a tool, as yeah. we know, you know, it can be a really powerful tool used in the right way, sport. So I wanted to utilise football, what I know well, and then link it to my conditions and then try and do something good and uh, try and impact on people's lives and provide something positive. So that's what the work in the last few years. We've, you know, we founded a project called the Diabetes Football Community in 2017 to do that. And um, since that point, you know, my life's never been the same since. It's been an yeah. incredible um, opportunity to meet people from all over the globe um, yeah. and you know we've had a big impact on people's lives here in the, U- the UK especially yeah. and uh, the work continues to grow. Good. Um, so going back to what you said right at the start of all that, when you said you was diagnosed as an eight-year-old, what brought that on? What made, what made maybe your mum or your dad think we need to get something checked out? What was the symptoms? What's the signs? Yeah, so it's, there's classic symptoms involved with type 1 diabetes. They're called the four T's. Yeah. So it's um, thirsty, toilet, thinner, tired. Yeah. So once people start noticing that, and it's, to be honest, it's normally the excessive thirst that people notice and then the dramatic weight loss from yeah. nowhere. So all of a sudden I'm drinking, you know, 10 cups of squash and it's the middle of winter. You know, that's going to stick out like a sore thumb. Yeah. So, um, but for me, I was diagnosed actually in late summer. So I was in September, which I think masked a little bit the symptoms of I could have been maybe diagnosed slightly earlier. But because it was summer, I was running yeah. around a lot. So you could explain away being tired. You could yeah, explain yeah. away being more thirsty. Yeah. Uh, you could explain away being slightly thinner. So... All of those things, you know, I think the weather changed significantly then towards the back end of August. And those those things that I was doing, and also I was probably not playing out as much, running around. Yeah. And I think those things were still happening. And um, this tends to happen quite a lot, actually. There's quite a lot of diagnosis of children in September time when the weather sort of changes after the summer. Um, the autumn time, there does tend to be quite a few um diagnoses if you like of, of the condition so mine was September the 6th 1999 day that you never really forget yeah, um, yeah walked into a GP surgery and um, you know went straight from a GP surgery to spend four nights in a hospital as a eight-year-old which was uh, harrowing yeah harrowing to say the least you know you go from thinking you're okay to like the first the next questions are like am I going to die you know you see your parents getting really upset um, you've got to go and deal with what's to come next and you don't really know what's coming next and thrusted into an environment that you just go how has this happened and uh, yeah you you end up in hospital you're on a drip no people putting needles in you and you know and I didn't really like needles at all I couldn't get on with them quite upset as a starting point. I remember my first ever injection um, and getting really upset for that. And then from then on, you just, I don't think we realise how adaptable we are as human beings. You know, I've heard many times say, I don't know, don't know how you inject yourself. You know, maybe some of this, you know, there's some of that stigma that's attached to it. I don't know how you do it. I could never do it. But as human beings, we're just, you know, when you're, it's survival instinct. And when you know that this is the thing that you have to do to then, 
stay alive for as long as you're great, you get on this planet. It's very easy. You, you learn that as much as you get upset, you just you know you 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 learn and you and you find a way. And uh, that was me. First few few days in hospital. And then at the end of the week, played my first game. You know, on the Friday, yeah. on the Monday, and then on Friday night, I played 15 minutes for my um for my kids team. You know, and that was like a it was a big statement. And then of like, this is how I'm going to tackle it. I'm never going to let it hold me back. This is yeah. like defiance, if you like. I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure that type one diabetes doesn't you know doesn't stand in my way. And that was the very first statement. Um, don't get me wrong, it was it was a strange experience. It just didn't feel like it used to feel. You know, it'd only been four or five days difference, but just it was surreal. I remember it. Um, you know, you don't really remember a lot when you're an eight-year-old, but those sorts of things. Really yeah, remember the feeling. I've written about it as well. I've written about it in the blog, and um, you know, you remember the feeling. You're just sort of so nervous, and then all of a sudden, you just just like everything. You click and then you go straight into the game and first touch and all of a sudden just you forget. Yeah, it's for me ever since then. Football's always been like a a place to forget. You know, the, a form of escapism. Yeah, a form of escapism, yeah. mate. For for what it can be like living with type one diabetes. Okay, so you know um, when you said about the symptoms, mm. did you have all four? Can can you can you? Can you display one or two, or do you have to have all four before you think, right, I need to go and have this checked out? If you was like, you know, your average Joe who might be a bit extra, bit, bit more thirsty than normal or might have dropped some considerable weight, because obviously dropping considerable weight can be a, a red flag for other things like cancer and so forth. So yeah. do you have to have all four? Or? I, I think usually the standout one is the, the drinking a lot, needed to drink and going to the toilet a lot and then maybe some fatigue because I didn't actually lose from what I remember I didn't lose a lot of weight I did lose a bit but yeah. not significant weight loss which is why I think my mum and dad were a bit like oh, a bit no. about it and a bit like not quite sure but I think it was as soon as the weather started to like get a bit cooler yeah and still drinking crazy amounts and I wasn't running around as much because maybe I was back in because it was the first week of school, I was just getting ready to go back to school, and then obviously I was I was diagnosed instead. Spent the first week of school back in hospital. Yeah. Okay. So obviously since then, I'd imagine life changed quite drastically. Um, self medication, self treatment became the forefront of your life. So what? Talk us through a typical day. So what's your day to day management like? Yeah. So. Um, very different to most, I can imagine. Um, it starts probably in the night. You know, if I have a good night's sleep, my levels are stable yeah. uh, and in range. I can feel pretty good in the morning. But if I've had a dodgy night where levels might be slightly high, for example, if they're out of range and they're high, I can wake up really a bit, a bit tired, a bit irritable. Yeah. Mouth could be a bit dry, feeling like I really need a drink. And also, if I've been awake in the middle of the night because of a hyper or my levels drop low, you know, you could you can lose hours of sleep because of it. So, yeah, it's, um, you know, it starts there, and then as soon as you wake up, first thing on your mind, really, what glucose level am I? Um, I'm lucky now; I have technology, which really helps to monitor and makes life so much easier. Yeah. You know, I wear a, a Dexcom uh, G6 on my arm; it's like a, a little chip on the side of my arm. It's, yeah. That that 
continuously monitors what glucose level I am. So I only have to roll over um, to the side of my bed, press a button, have a little look at, on the screen at what level I am. Yeah. But then by doing that, you start off my day in a very different way because from that moment onwards, I then make decisions throughout the day about what I need to do to keep that level at a safe place, which yeah. is obviously not what anybody else has to do. So then I start thinking, right, what level am I? So how much insulin do I need to take with breakfast? Yeah. Uh, my breakfast will be like anybody else's, but I'm starting to count carbohydrates because I have to dose my insulin to the amount yeah carbohydrates that I have so for example you know I have an apple and a banana it's about 30 grams of carbs in the morning so I need roughly two or depending on activity levels two or three units so roughly I'm on one unit of insulin to 10 grams of carbs so I'm constantly doing this mental math about dosing about what I need to do to stay in range um, over over a long period over the whole day so that starts at breakfast And then from then on, you're checking your levels. You know, if you've got meetings coming up, you don't want to go low in them. So you might have to make adjustments. If you go high, again, you might have to make an adjustment and bring things down. If you're going to go out for a run, you need to think about what level you're starting at. So do I need to eat something to bring it up or do I need to produce my insulin at lunch slightly because I'm going to go for a run in the afternoon? So I I end up being a little bit higher knowing that I go for a run and it will bring it back down. So this is, you know, all of these little so little decisions make dramatic impact then on how I feel. You know, if yeah. I fall out of range, this is when you start to feel a bit ropey and um, can be dramatically impacted. So throughout the day, I'm I'm constantly looking, making decisions, and then obviously injecting insulin every time I'm eating any carbohydrate throughout the day. So yeah. constantly capping carbs up, constantly looking and seeing what adjustments I need to make. So I'm always carrying glucose tablets on me just in case my levels drop to a little bit low and I need to boost it back up and I've always got my insulin on me again just in case my levels are too high and I need to bring them back down so it's a constant uh, monitoring what's going on and then just adjusting and trying to make adjustments to um, yeah to make sure I feel well essentially in a day okay so you kind of touched on my next question um then with the exercise but how does more specifically, so you mentioned earlier that you've been away with the Wellness Futsal team. On a, I mean, we've had conversations about it before when you've been to like the Euros and stuff like that. How does your management change when you know you've got to fit it around quite an intense short period of like sporting activity? Yeah, I mean, for... does it Does it change? Well, you try to approach things with routine, so you try to, and but there's principles as well. So I know, for example, like my insulin, that if I dose a short-acting insulin to cover carbohydrate, I know it roughly sits in my system for two to three hours. After that two to three hours, I know whatever level I am, I, I can adjust it then without any insulin in the system, knowing that it's a true adjustment, if that makes sense, because there's yeah. nothing else going on with that level. So... Yeah. Uh, you're constantly thinking about that, but also thinking about the amount of activity. So you go away with the national team and you end up doing at least one training. If, if you're building up for a game, sometimes you can have two training sessions in a day, two games across a weekend. And How you're long do they last for? Pardon? How long do So the, the, the games are 40 minutes stop clock. So 
Yeah. Obviously, as a player, you get rolled on and, and rotated off. In yeah. So you're never really going to know how much game time you're going to get because it's not about who's in the starting lineup. It's about how the manager uses the rotation and what players he uses. So it all depends, really, on where you are in that squad and how you're playing, how much he decides to use you in that situation. So you just have to be prepared as best you can. So you're just trying, like I said, you're trying to second guess what you think your glucose levels are going to do as a result of being um, involved in those intensities of exercise um, and then making sure you're prepared in case you need to make adjustments. So that's what I'm constantly doing across a weekend. I, I know, you know, and food varies as well, which is a challenge. You know, you go away and all of a sudden the food changes that you're used to eating, which yeah. impacts on your preparation. Um, you need to be like a, you need to be like a small scale mathematician and dietitian all in one just to, <laughs> to get it right for game day. But yeah, I, I suppose you learn on the job and you learn by doing. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a pleasure to do it. It's a, it's, it's hard work. A lot of hard work goes into it. And, um, I don't think people often realize how challenging it is. I think if you spoke to any of my roommates, though, that share with me when we go away with the national team, yeah, and, and they see what I have to do and what I'm doing, my injections in the room, you know, my monitoring, um, my preparation and all the, the things that I'm putting in to try and just get, performance out of myself yeah a lot of people would be really really surprised about how how hard it is it's like another job mate it is it is another job to manage type 1 diabetes um do anything in life yeah um so yeah so i mean like you say i suppose it's very difficult to judge it so like if you if you're expecting to you know not play as much in a certain game and like i don't know from a from a sporting kind of medical point of view someone gets injured and then you're thrown into the mix how how would you manage that in in that specific so say say one of your guys comes off injured and and you know the the, the gaffer's like chris get on you know you're on now but you haven't prepared for that pre-match because you expected to not play as much how would you then manage that in in that kind of short time period yeah, so... Um, if Have you been in that situation? Oh, all, all the time. So you just... Um, I mean, even... I'm just thinking about the last international game I played and um, over the home nations back in 2019. And we had... Um, I think we had two red cards in the same game. Um, and uh, I think... Yeah, two red cards. So which dramatically changed the way that the manager was rotating. Um it meant I was playing an awful lot of game time more than I was yeah. adapting to the situation. And, um, yeah, I mean, you just, I think in that position, I just learned to adapt and you, you put yourself to begin with in a good position. And then once you're in a good position and you're comfortable with that position, you can start to think, right, I know what's going to happen by yeah. me playing more game time. So my levels are going to go up. Yeah. Up. I need to keep an eye on that. And then you start thinking about how do you manage that situation live in the moment and what you expect to see. It's a little bit different in football. You know, if somebody went down in the first half, but you'd be prepared for that. Like I would have prepared my levels ready for that game. I would have been, you know, I wouldn't have eaten. I would have eaten three hours before kickoff anyway, because I thought I might be starting or, you know, I'd be prepared. Right. So actually, as long as I'm able to check my levels before I go on and I know where I'm at, 
I can make a tiny adjustment and I know I'm going to go onto the pitch and play, I don't know, 60 minutes because I've come on in the first half. So as long as you're prepared and you've got the right things around you and you haven't made any sort of glaring errors where it's gone really wrong or you're low or, or something, you're struggling to get yourself into the, into the zone, if you like, of where you need to be to perform. If you're in a good place and you've got all the stuff around you, you just adapt, mate. Like a comedian, you just change the colour. Like that, right. <laughs> so basically, what I'm, what I'm taking from that is it's all in the preparation. No matter, oh. no matter, no matter how, how, how much of an adjustment you can make live time in the moment, it's all about your preparation. All in the prep. Everything about it is the preparation. It's the routine. It's avoiding the avoiding any complications, if you like, leading up to the game. Because if you're if you've avoided those complications, it won't have sat any energy from you so actually then when you go into that moment and you're ready and things are in a good place you can just go out in there and perform and you know that's hopefully what me and many others do is just we go out there and we perform and we just show that you know as much as we had to put in some serious work to get there and a lot of graph to be prepared we actually can go out there and we can still mix it with everybody else yeah cool um my final question uh, we've had conversations about this, this in the past, and I think there's a lot of um, education, is that the right word? Uh, around kind of the stigma that is type 1. I think um, there's a lot of confusion between type 1 and type 2, and how they both come on. Um, and there's been instances and examples in the past where, you know, certain certain foods, certain examples have been given as like, oh, for example, you're fat, that means you're going to be diabetic. So, or you're obese or overweight. So, you know, I kind of, I, I had an awareness of this, but, you know, there's things that have happened in the, probably in the last six to 12 months that have made me think, you know what, it is worth getting educated on this. And I, I suppose my question around that is, what stigma have you had to deal with? And what's, what's kind of the psychological effects of that? And like, what's the psychosocial effects as well? Yeah, so there's a there's a few things there to start with. So if we break it down to begin with of of diabetes in its entirety, so there's roughly let's say as a rough number, there's about four million people living with diabetes in the UK. Ninety um, percent of those are people with type two diabetes. Yeah. So then the other like five to ten percent is type one and other types of the condition. So you can understand right how the stigma of what type 2 diabetes or what can be type 2 diabetes how it comes about because it is the majority of the cases right of the condition but what you have to remember and this is what most people don't know is that actually 50 percent of those type 2 diabetes cases have nothing to do with lifestyle and lifestyle is the thing that we often see in the papers that's where the stigma comes from people saying you know if you eat this food you know you're going to get type 2 diabetes but it's never they don't they don't use the word type 2 before it. They just use the word diabetes. So yeah. it's constantly in the media. It's, you know, um, eat too many, let's, for argument's sake, stereotype, eat too many sweets, eat too many cakes, and you're going to get diabetes. Now, because of that, because somebody says that, and it, because it's widespread national media coverage, that then covers everybody with a condition. So everybody is tarnished. Yeah. that sweeping statement 
Yeah. Sweeping statements like, and I can give you a really good example of happened in the last year, two years, Paul Hollywood, Great British Bake Off, there was a, you know, a really sweet dish on there, there was a dessert, and he turns around and says, ah, oh, it's diabetes on a plate. Now, immediately, what that does is it suggests that those with diabetes have eaten too many of those, and that's what you get from that's how, that's how you get the condition, just eating too yeah. many sugary sweets and desserts. Yeah. Which, in my case, is not the case at all. You know, I have got type 1 diabetes, is autoimmune condition. So my immune system, for whatever reason, triggered itself to attack the beta cells in my pancreas and stop my pancreas from producing insulin. Yeah. Now, the reason it's different in type 2 diabetes is because for many of those people, actually, their pancreas is still producing insulin, but it's impacted in some way. So it might be just less efficient. You could be getting a little bit older, and actually your pancreas isn't able to keep up with the amount of insulin it needs to produce for the carbohydrate you're consuming. So it causes a, a real challenge with that. You could be um, eating that many carbohydrates, for example, that then you create insulin resistance. So then you cause a, a, your own challenge in, in how your body is able to get through the glucose and utilize glucose in there. And that's yeah. where it's type 2. But because it affects the same organ and, the, and, and it affects that hormone, insulin, that's why we're all bucketed under the word diabetes. Yeah. Now, as I said, there's only 50% of type 2 cases which are attributed to lifestyle. That's still a significant amount, obviously. Yeah. But... It has nothing to do with me with type 1 diabetes, absolutely nothing. But because of wide, you know, widespread national media coverage, yeah. positioned as though you can cure diabetes with a pill, you know, you can have, um, you eat this and, you know, it's diabetes on a plate or people making jokes about, you know, um, certain foods and saying, oh, you know, oh, it looks like, I'm going to get diabetes when I eat this. You know, that sort of thing happens so regularly that we just perpetuate the stigma that surrounds diabetes when the majority of people, we've just said, that's probably, you know, 55% maybe, give or take, over 50% have got nothing to do with lifestyle. And yet that is the, the defining factor of what most people believe when they look at the word diabetes. Now, how does that then affect people? Well, you imagine, Jeff, right? If somebody's going to keep telling you, um, oh, making jokes about, oh, you've got diabetes, oh, did you eat too many sweets as a kid? Or, you know, um, were you a fat kid? Or, you know, or, or to say something about, um, you know, you don't look like you've got diabetes. And you go, well, this is so... The views that you've got, I just, I'm not going to be able to change them right now. But because it happens so frequently, and I've seen it so many times, you just think, what's the point of telling people? And actually, life becomes easier when you hide it, when you just don't tell people about it. And actually, the problem with that is, it's, you know, in the academic papers, in the literature, those that hide conditions, invisible conditions like ours, actually then do... Uh, are more likely to do the wrong things to, in, in managing it, in self-management. So what we're doing is by creating these, this psychosocial issue around stigma, we're actually discouraging people with the condition to do the right things for their management. So it's having a hugely detrimental impact 
on yeah. how people look at themselves and then what they do to manage their condition. Yeah. So it's a real challenge around it. I think it's not just around the diet and lifestyle. I think about some of the things I've experienced recently. Injections is a, is a really big one. I think people have got a, a, a view that injections means drug addict because in the last few years, every time, not every time, but there's been a few occurrences where I've been injecting and people have made comments about me being um, using anabolic steroids, you know, to cheat or, you know, like as a joke. Yeah. And then people have said, you know, you're shooting up heroin again. You know, these you know, outrageous jokes. The thing is with that, just remember, I treat you so I can vouch you don't use anabolic steroids. No, exactly. So I saw, I saw them cast. <laughs> <laughs> but, you you know, those the, the jokes. But because you hear them so often, you just think, what's the point of telling people? And as I said, you know, by, by having that view and going inwards, you then end up doing the wrong things. And for a very long time, you know, I didn't look after my condition as well as I could because I was just so impacted upon by the amount of stigma that surrounded my condition. I didn't feel open to talk about it. And to be honest, I couldn't be bothered to continue to take the flack, you know, in certain situations. And because I was surrounded by people that were uneducated about the condition. So that's been a huge part of what has then pushed me towards creating the peer support community, the diabetes football community. So we can start to raise awareness, we can start to dispel that stigma and actually, I think, hopefully start changing minds beyond just those with the condition, uh, how they look at themselves, you know, re-engage them with it, identify with the condition, but actually, I hope, change the minds of those in the mainstream about what actually diabetes looks like and, and what, you know, people with the condition can do and what they can eat and, you know, how their life actually looks. Yeah. Well, that's it for this episode and we just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who has tuned in and don't forget to subscribe and follow the podcast on whichever platform you're listening to us on and whilst you're there, if you could rate and review us, that will help us and the show to reach more people. Whilst if you'd like to get in contact with us about any ideas or thoughts for the show, send us an email about the Diabetes Dugout to the Diabetes Football Community at gmail.com or head to the website www.thediabetesfootballcommunity.com for more information about our project. Thanks for joining us and tune in next time for more stories, inspiration and information about diabetes in football.